Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Two Fit Podcast, where we, the Two Fit Guys, help you push the boundaries of performance mentally, physically, and everywhere in between. And today's guest is no exception. Her name is Erin Toll, aka The Beast. And she's here to help you say bye-bye to food cravings, excess weight, aches and pains, fatigue, bad skin, and digestive issues. Erin is a certified nutritionist and certified natural healthcare professional. She specifically works with those struggling from autoimmune, digestive, hormonal, and inflammatory disorders. And what we really like about Erin's approach is there is no one-size-fits-all program. She works with each of her clients' unique biochemistry to determine exactly what dietary, supplementation, and lifestyle changes will work best for them as an individual. Erin conducts food sensitivity panels, hormonal panels, and even takes an extensive look at your health history to determine the best course of action. In this episode, we cover everything you need to know about food sensitivities, which is why Erin changed her career path to functional medicine in the first place. She used to deal with upset stomach, She was always in pain, bloated, fatigued, had crazy mood swings, and had difficulty losing some of that stubborn weight despite her active lifestyle. But after figuring out the root cause of her health issues, she's now able to live life to the fullest. And her passion is to help you reach your true health and fitness potential. So whether you're driving in the car, out for a run, or just chilling at the house, stay too fit and enjoy the show. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Aaron, I have to ask, I saw your website, Aaron the Beast, and I just yeah. I have to know, where did this name come from? How did that come about? Because oh, the Beast is, doesn't sound like one of those nicknames that you get. You know, That's not thrown around lightly. No, that's probably true. Well, when I first started CrossFit in Minnesota, where I'm from, the box that I was at, it was actually one of the other girls at the box just started calling me that all the time. And then it like just caught on. And so the nickname comes from my original box that I started CrossFit at back home. And then when I started revamping my business and stuff like that and became an independent, uh, location independent practitioner, my business consulting team was like, we have to use that. We have to oh, use yeah. it. So I kind of like, I was very leery about signing on to that name, like for my brand, but people remember it. So I guess that's the important thing. Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. We had a guy on one time and he, uh, he said, you know, I'm smart enough to know when somebody gives you a cool nickname that you have to run with it. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So Aaron, how would you describe exactly what you do? So I'm a certified natural healthcare practitioner. Basically, I work in functional medicine. So I'm looking at getting to the root cause of health conditions. So I don't, you know, cover up symptoms or anything like that. And everything that I do is all natural, I guess, and is the best way to describe it. So I'm not using drugs or synthetic, you know, anything like that when I'm making recommendations to my clients and things like that. I'm doing Uh, The majority of their programming is going to be diet. And then I do do some supplementation and things like that. And then everything that I do uh, for each client is all run off of their unique biochemistry. So we're going to run like a whole gamut of panels, food sensitivity panels, hormonal panels, toxicity panels, all that good stuff. So we can figure out exactly what's working and what's off within each individual client and then formulate their program from there. So it's all customized to each individual. Now, was it a a personal journey that led you down this road? Yeah, kind of. I feel like I've always just been kind of attuned to listening to my body and trying to do things as naturally and holistically as possible. However, when I was younger, I had a lot of digestive issues, some thyroid issues and stuff like that. And I was going the medical route just because that's what my parents knew. And that's kind of, you know, what they were well, we're going to go to this doctor and we're going to go to that doctor and stuff like that. And nothing ever helped. They kept on just telling me that I was normal or fine, you know, and I didn't feel fine because I wanted to go to bed at two o'clock in the afternoon and I could go to bed at two o'clock in the afternoon and sleep until like eight o'clock the next morning. No problem. So obviously there's something wrong. That's not normal. So it wasn't until I started working with a naturopathic doctor that I started to get to the root of the issues and learning that 
oh, it's not normal to be bloated and in pain after you eat. And it's not normal to want to take a nap and crash and not be able to mentally function at two o'clock in the afternoon and have all these aches and pains and things like that. So um, it was through that that I was able to regain my health. And I was a personal trainer at first. And then over time, um, finished up my school through um, nutrition and, and things like that. So Cool. So did you just find out through that journey that you were eating foods that did not sit well with you, so to speak, and, and just didn't treat your body correctly that maybe you as an individual just didn't break down, didn't absorb, didn't need? Yeah, it was really through that journey because I felt like everything I ate upset my system, which is what I find with a lot of people where they can't pinpoint exactly what's causing their issues and things like that. So for me, I felt like literally everything I ate was an issue. For somebody else, it might not be that extreme, but your gut is still the root of health. Gut either begins or ends in, you know, health either begins or ends in the gut. So if there's a breakdown within that system of any kind, it's going to trickle down to other areas, you know, the thyroid, the adrenals, how your body utilizes food in general, stuff like that. So... Sure. Something I wanted to get into with you, Aaron, was so I used to work for a, an allergist and there's a lot of people who would come in and it was it was a lot of the, uh, you know, the testing with the needles underneath the skin, the yeah. intradermals and all that. And then you're getting on allergy shots. But we have a lot of people come in for food sensitivity testing. And it'd really just be like a little scratch test on the arm. And then he would always do an IgE test as well to follow okay. up with that. Good. And now if nothing showed up on the IgE or either, he would just basically write it off as, well, it's just an intolerance. You're not allergic, you're just intolerant to it, so stay away from it. Uh-huh. So I, w- I just want to dive <laughs> into that a little bit. And so what's the real difference there between, you know, an allergy and an intolerance versus, uh, you know, a sensitivity? Okay, so this is where a lot of people get really confused because it is really confusing, the terms and terminology. So if you have a true, what's considered an allergy, okay, you have more than likely like an instantaneous reaction. You go into anaphylactic shock or something like that. That's an IgE reaction. So the Ig there's IgE, IgA, IgG portions of the immune system. And foods will react differently within these different components of the immune system. Your IgE, which is where food allergies are diagnosed, which is that instantaneous reaction, like people that have peanut allergies or, you know, things like that, they could die like pretty quickly if they have that reaction. Um, those are very, very rare, actually. We're starting to see them become more common, which is a whole other issue um, that we could do a whole other podcast on. <laughs> but those are typically relatively rare and they're instantaneous. If you have a reaction within your IgA portion of your immune system, that's gut specific. And that's actually where celiac disease is, is diagnosed. And that's an intolerance. So what we label each food issue with is determined by what part of the immune system it affects. It's not that one is greater or lesser than the other. It just affects the body in a different way. So when you have a gluten sensitivity or a gluten intolerance, rather, that's the IgA that's being affected. That's where we have that um, celiac disease diagnosis. Well, celiac disease is on a spectrum. So, or gluten sensitivity is on a spectrum. So you could be very, very intolerant, or you could just be a little tiny bit intolerant and anywhere in between, which is where a lot of that gray area comes in with eating wheat and gluten and things like that. IgG is the largest portion of the immune system that makes up about 80% or more of your immune system. And it's gut, it's, it's lymphatic, it's your joints, it's your brain, it's your nervous system, your glands, everything has some kind of wrap up in that IgG. So that's really when you have a sensitivity within that IgG, that's affecting everything in your body, which is the most common place where we see food sensitivities. The IgG portion of the immune system is sensitivities. IgA is intolerance and IgE is allergy. Mm. It's just the labels that are put on the different parts of the immune system kind of distinguish between the three. But that IgG is where we get into a lot of trouble because people are like, oh, it's just a sensitivity. It's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. If your gut isn't healthy, like I said before, your body is not healthy. So you might not have 
some serious issue right now, like you would if you went into anaphylactic shock. But further down the road, this is where we see, you know, a lot of autoimmune disorders come from, cancer, really debilitating conditions that can kill you come from having those IgG reactions that are undiagnosed, untreated, just kind of left out there, you know, to wreak havoc on the body and break down, break down the system. Um, where if we get those sensitivities out, we can re-inoculate the gut with that good bacteria, uh, grow back the mucosal lining of the gut, get everything just kind of situated in the gut again and within the immune system and balance out the immune system again. And then a lot of those sensitivities, once that's done, you can actually incorporate them slowly back into your diet and you won't have a problem with them. But the trick is figuring out what foods you're sensitive to and you know, working with someone to, to balance that, that system back out, back, back, back out. Get rid of Aaron, you brought up gluten. So I'd love to highlight that a little bit because that's such a big topic these days. It is. Yeah. It's highlighted on every food or not highlighted for that matter. And, you know, we hear a lot, Jake and I like, oh, I don't need to avoid gluten. I'm not celiac. But could you shed yeah. a little light on really what gluten is and maybe why everyone could actually benefit from probably avoiding it for the most part? Because you know, to my understanding, no matter the individual celiac or not, it's still going to compromise the integrity of your gut. It does. I could go on forever about gluten issues. But like I said, gluten is, it's on a spectrum. So 77% of the population or more is sensitive to gluten in some capacity from a mild sensitivity to celiac disease. Okay. So no matter where you fall on that spectrum, you're going to want to avoid gluten. Um, and when I do my food sensitivity panels, I actually test in the IgG and in the IgA. So we know where a specific person's sensitivity lies. And for a lot of people, it's actually in both, in the IgG and in the IgA. So they had, kind of have this double whammy thing going on with that. And um, not to interrupt you, but could yeah. you also shed a little light? Like I think, too, people probably maybe don't understand the timeline of when gluten was introduced into our diets, but it really wasn't uh, that long yeah. ago, you know, because no, we wasn't. hear that too, that feedback of, well, if they ate grains a thousand years ago, or it really, the, grains and wheat, it hasn't been introduced yeah. as a food, you know, product to us for that long. That's very, very true. Gluten is actually a hybrid product. Well, gluten is the protein that's found in wheat and uh, grains in the wheat family. So it's actually, um, it was developed by the Egyptians, you know, years and years and years ago, where they were trying to create a plant that was a little bit more hardy, that could withstand different weather conditions and stuff like that. And through their, you know, ancient technology and whatnot, they developed um, these hardier plants, which is basically what we have is modern day wheat. And in times of famine and things like that, people would be able to gravitate more towards those foods instead of, you know, your your standard vegetables and fruits and, and meats and things like that. So it's something that's a little bit more sustainable. So people, you know, in times of war and things like that, that would be something that that they would kind of latch on to a little bit more because it's cheaper. Now, what what we have is a problem with like genetically modified foods and things like that. Pretty much all wheat is genetically modified within the country, which means that it has a lot more gluten in it because gluten creates bulk. Um, so you can create more, more product with less money so they can get more yield from the crops and things like that if they have more gluten within, within the, the individual crop itself. So they've developed you know, through genetically modified foods ways to to make more money basically off of the same thing so we're seeing actually more gluten bombarding our systems because there's just more gluten in the products that we were eating previously so so that becomes an issue too because you are constantly bombarding the system with something over and over and over again it's like if you're punched once compared to if you're punched a hundred times like you're going to take that first punch a lot easier than if you're going to take those next 99 punches, you know? So it's kind of like gluten, something that's very, very inflammatory and causes great, you know, stress on the body as a whole. If it's hitting your system constantly, 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 because you're always eating these cereals and these breads and these crackers. And, you know, we're just a very carb 
addicted society, it's constantly bombarding your system. So even if back in the day, people were eating, you know, gluten containing grains and things like that, and it seemed as if they didn't have very many problems with it. The stuff that they were eating then versus the stuff that they're eating now is completely different. It's not the same thing at all. And even if you look at studies from, you know, the 30s, the 20s, stuff like that, even though they didn't know what gluten was at that point in time, you'll see different doctors that have done different studies and research on children that had like failure to thrive or were just, you know, had these mysterious illnesses that they were just sick and they didn't know why they were sick. And there was a lot of doctors that would had figured out that if they took brains out of the equation, the kids got better. So they didn't really quite understand why that was because they didn't have the technology to kind of like break apart the brain at that point in time and figure out that, hey, there's this protein called gluten kind of thing. They knew that much. So even back then, before genetically modified foods and where our food was a lot cleaner and we didn't have all these chemicals and things like that there was still a correlation between brains and, you know, sickness basically, or gluten and sickness. We just didn't know what it was called at that time. We have a name for it. Yeah. That kind of leads me down my next question, which we can, we can just stay along the, the lines of gluten and gluten sensitivities, but how much of that is, you know, genetics versus our environment, the the actual, the status of the food that we're taking in? Well, (sighs) There's so many ways to, yeah, there's so many like, but, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's so many different avenues that this could go down. But generally speaking, very generally speaking, genetics only account for like 10% of what's going on with your health and stuff like that. It's when you aggravate those genes in your kinetic chain and your genetic link um, chain, when you aggravate those genes that are a little bit weaker that's when they express themselves. So if you have a gluten sensitivity and you're constantly aggravating the gene of now thyroid or something like that, because that's the weak link within your genetic link and your mom has thyroid issues and your grandma and your, you know, this person, that person, your family, it's not necessarily that, Oh shoot, I have a thyroid condition because it runs in my family kind of thing. It could be that So many people in your family just have a sensitivity to gluten and the thyroid is the weak link. And so that's why they have all these thyroid issues. So I'm always trying to find that what cause of why is that happening? Because the body wants to be healthy. It's always trying to get to balance. So it just doesn't do something just willy-nilly just because. Some food sensitivities, gluten specifically, can be kind of like not passed down, you know, like, but can kind of like clump to certain, certain, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not type, certain backgrounds and stuff like that. So like um, a lot of Irish people have, um, or people that come from that Irish lineage are kind of more prone to celiac disease, for example. Mm. So there is some correlation between that, which is kind of interesting. Well, there's a lot of different variables. So it could be a little bit of genes. It could be a little bit of your gut is destroyed because you eat crap. And so you're just piling on all these food sensitivities. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of different variables. that Much more focus on the epigenetics than yeah. genetics itself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, your gut changes like every 24 hours your gut flora and and things like that. So once we get somebody on the right protocol and figure out exactly what's going on with their body, you see changes really, really quickly as long as they stick to their protocol and things like that. So yeah, you can change, you can change what's going on in in the body as a whole and the gut, all of that stuff pretty quickly. It's kind of cool. So for everyone listening, like what are some of the early warning signs that people can look for with food sensitivities? I mean, obviously you said the allergies is kind of very well known, especially if someone has a peanut allergy, they know probably themselves or the friend in their family that, you know, oh, they're, they know that they're going to have a really bad episode if they're exposed to them. But more on the food sensitivity and intolerance side, what can people look for, you know, to understand that, hey, maybe this is the food I'm taking in or lack thereof? Yeah, sure. So 
a lot of the normal, I guess, symptoms that you would think of when you think of like a food sensitivity or something that you eat negatively affecting you, the gastro issues that you would have. So the bloating, the constipation, diarrhea, belching, um, heartburn, indigestion in general, you know, stomach pain, gas, cramping, all that stuff. Those are kind of obvious signs that there's something going on there. Also things like chronic fatigue, if you already have, if you've been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, there's most definitely food sensitivities going on because that's one of the issues that always leads to an autoimmune disease is a lot of food sensitivities. So thyroid conditions, skin issues, joint issues, depression, anxiety is a really big one, sleep problems. I mean, it's not just stomach. It's not just gut. And a lot of people think, oh, I don't have a problem with food because, you know, I don't have any digestive issues. But like I said, and I'll say it 10 million times, your gut is the core for everything. Health is made or broke within the gut. So even if you don't think that you have GI issues, a lot of times the other issues that you are having are stemming from the gut, even though you don't feel like you have those traditional um, gut issues. The other thing to keep in mind is that a food sensitivity is very different from a food allergy, which is that immediate reaction where a food sensitivity, I could have an immediate reaction or I could have a reaction 72 hours to 21 days later. So there's really this huge window of time where the immune system is reacting very slowly where what what's affecting me? What's making me moody or what's making me super tired? What's making my knees hurt? Is it what I just ate? Is it what I ate last night? Is it what I ate, you know, last Friday? I don't know, unless I do, unless I do a test and figure out what's going on, you know? So it's hard to just pinpoint those things down on your own. It's kind of frustrating to try to do on your own. Yeah. I know one of the problems that you say that you like, you tackle and come across most often are these hard charging athletes, specifically CrossFitters, you know, they're yeah. in their box one hard a couple times a day. They feel like they're eating right, yet they're the only, only ones left in the gym who don't have that gladiator body, you know, after three months. Yep. They feel like everybody else is changing but them. That's frustrating. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it can be, yeah. And we've even noticed that at the gyms and boxes that we've been to over the years, like, man, this guy's in here, you know, twice a day. He's clearly getting stronger, but his physique hasn't changed you know, whatsoever. And we just say, man, it's got to be diet. So what, what's the advice that you find yourself giving to those people most often to reverse that? Well, for those people, I actually like to look at diet and hormones because a lot of those people are healing themselves, you know, doing multiple wads a day. They're doing too much cardio and their cortisol level is way too high. And that'll cause you to hold on to fat. So that's one thing that we need to look at. And then the other thing is, you know, just do a food panel. Like for all of my clients, I've never had a client that was like, that really didn't benefit me. Like I've never in my eight years had anyone be like, nah, I could have done without that. You know, like everyone is over the moon about their food panel and it just opens up their mind and unlocks doors. And it's like that missing it's like the holy grail of fitness. Like if you, if you want to be healthy for the long haul, you want to, you know, improve your numbers, you want to improve your body composition, you want to PR your back squat, whatever it is, you could be eating the cleanest diet in the world, but you could still be having a lot of issues with meeting your goals because you have food sensitivities. If I have food sensitivity to coconut and I'm cooking everything I eat in coconut oil, well, guess what? I'm causing inflammation in my body and I'm not going to get to where I want to go because I'm constantly hitting my body with something that it doesn't like, that it doesn't agree with. So the simplest, easiest thing to do that takes all the headaches out is just getting a panel done and figuring out, you know, what, what works for your body and what doesn't work for your body. And if it comes back that you have, you know, a lot of sensitivities to foods that you really, really like and you eat a lot of, which is very, very common actually. Just know that eventually you will be able to introduce a lot of those foods back in once we get rid of whatever's causing those food sensitivities in the first place. What are some of the, your favorite resources for getting a food panel done? 
Um, I do all of my panels through Immunolabs. It is a lab. It's a specialty lab. And basically, since I'm location-independent practitioner, I, I have clients all over the country. So it's very simple. All I do is I mail you out a kit and you take it to a lab that I'll find for you in your area. They do a blood draw. They package it all up. They ship it to Immunolabs, which is located in Florida. They will run the panel on it and then email me back the results. It's all very, very quick. It's like a week. It takes you get your you get your panel, you know, get your results, all that good stuff. It's very quick. No, it's a, a full comprehensive panel that they have, or are you sitting down and checking off, you know, food items that I'm eating regularly? No, it's a it's a comprehensive panel that they have. So it's 154 foods plus two different gluten panels. Oh, cool. Um, so we're testing that IgA and the IgG portion of the immune system with the gluten. And it's most commonly eaten foods is basically what they're testing. So there's not like a lot of obscure, weird things on there that nobody's eating or anything like that. It's all common foods that we eat every single day kind of things. And they're a specialty lab. So they only deal with food sensitivities. There's a lot of labs that say that they do food sensitivity panels. And they do a horrible, horrible job. There's something called batch testing, which is where a company will get a bunch of different vials of blood and they will run them through a machine. They'll run like 200 panels at the same time. So my results will be on your panel. Your results will be on my panel. It's not accurate. You know, if I'm going to pay all this money for, for a food panel and try to like, not only that, but like, adhere to the food panel, I want the food panel to be correct, that I'm getting the results that I expect and that I deserve. Immunolabs runs each lab, each person's lab individually. So when your panel comes into the lab, they're testing your blood and your blood alone individually through that process. They're not batch testing and running it through, you know, with 199 other panels. You have to be careful where you get your food panels done. You know, if somebody's telling you that they can run this panel for you and they'll test 500 foods for 50 bucks, well, you're probably not going to get accurate results. (laughs) Yeah. I think we're kind of scratching the surface of something that I wanted to ask. And that was, you brought up the example of the coconut oil, you know, just as a example, but, you know, hear this too, where okay, I went paleo, but man, after two months, I feel awful. And it could, it may be that it's not that you went paleo, but it could be some of those new foods you incorporated for going paleo, or if you were going higher fat, more along a keto line, it maybe wasn't the ketogenic diet, but it was some of the foods you incorporated. Exactly. Could you highlight some of that? Because I think sometimes, and and I don't think any of us here are really fans of quote unquote diets, but- there is a way that the human physiology likes to function, likes to burn fuel, likes to take in fuel. And I think that's pretty consistent just among the human population. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So having said that, one, do you kind of have an ideal macro nutrient ratio that you see across everyone that kind of you promote? Does Uh, that make sense? Like it's not so much the diet as it is maybe just some of those individual foods. Like how they break, how you break things down. Right. So when I get a panel back, I'm not only looking at the foods that you're sensitive to, but I'm also looking for the pattern within the panel. So if you have a bunch of beans and some grains and you have cane sugar and blah, blah, blah on your panel, I know that you're not digesting starches. So eating starch, therefore, for you at this point in time, we're going to want to scale that back. So that we can get your body to a point where you can digest those starches. Or if I get a panel back and there's a ton of nuts and seeds and things like that on there and different types of oils and stuff like that, then I know you're not digesting fat. Or if there's a bunch of meat on your panel, you're not digesting protein. So we need to figure out how we can get your body to digest those macronutrients. So at the beginning, the beginning of a person's program, and I work in three-month programs, might look is going to look a little bit different than the end game, you know, what they're eating, because we have to get their body digesting properly first, before we can start to kind of structure something that's going to work for them long term. Once I can get you digesting, 
then we can do, you know, like relatively standard, standard macronutrient breakdowns and stuff like that. But it's figuring out what macronutrients you are digesting, what ones you are not digesting. It's very, very common to not be digesting all three. And that's a lot of times why when people go on a paleo diet that they like crap is because they don't break down protein properly. There's so many people that do not break down protein at all. It's because we have this whole issue with everyone popping antacids like it's candy. And that is putting out that stomach acid, which is supposed to be breaking down that protein. So we need to get that stomach acid on balance and balance that out so you can digest your protein. And then a paleo diet probably won't be a problem for you anymore. Now, is that because these people are over-consuming protein? So when people go paleo, a lot of times they do start eating way too much protein. So they almost go into, like, if you look at a lot of paleo recipes, it's like a ton of protein and some sweet potatoes. Sure. So, yeah. So it's like, they're not getting enough fiber. They're not getting enough of those low calorie, high nutrient, you know, watery vegetables that really help move things through the system and detox the cells and stuff like that. So things like zucchini, broccoli, cauliflower, celery, cucumbers, bell peppers, things like that. They're eating very, very little of that in comparison to how much meat they're eating. So it's like this, I don't know, it's it's a weird thing, I think, with kind of this whole paleo craze, you know, is that everyone's like, oh, I'm eating healthy because I'm eating this root vegetable and all this, you know, grass-fed meat, which is fabulous, but there is too much of a good thing. And if your body can't break down even a little bit of a good thing, then you're going to have a major issue. So yeah, a lot of people, when they go paleo, they're just like raw, raw protein. And that's when they get a big, big issue coming in. Right. And there's not a lot of these natural occurring probiotics in red meat. You know, it's, uh, yeah, those exactly. occur in, you know, your fruits and vegetables and the fiber, like you said, and everything yep. It's going to help you populate some healthy bacteria and also break down those foods. Exactly. And I have all my clients start on fermented foods just to help to re-inoculate the gut, get that good bacteria going in there, give them some enzymes, all that good stuff. So we can start to balance out that ecosystem because that's really, that's really re- problem-wise for 99.9% of people. You mentioned a second ago about the everyone popping in acids. And that seems like a really reoccurring theme. It is. You know, neither one of us are doctors here, but my opinion and and advice is to always actually see if you need more acid because it could be not that you need antacid, but maybe you need some betaine HCL, which is usually a go-to. You get the gold star for the day. All right. (laughs) There we go. Good for you, because that is point on. And when I teach nutrition seminars, I always talk about that, how 99.9% of the time, you do not have too much acid. That is actually extremely rare, extremely rare. Even if you have ulcers, there's something else going on in the gut, and that's probably erosion due to bacteria that's eating away at your stomach. The problem most of the time is that you have too little stomach acid. And the reason that you're having that indigestion, that heartburn, that just irritating, nasty feeling is because for a couple of reasons, either the stomach is releasing the little bit of acid that it does have at the wrong times. And therefore, then you're getting that, that burning. You have food sensitivities and your stomach is your weak genetic link. And that's why you're getting the burning or your stomach is supposed to do this nice, gentle rolling thing when it digests food. And if there's not enough acid, instead, what it'll do is like this squeezing kind of rough convulsing thing. And then it'll splash that little bit of acid that it does have up into the esophagus. And then you'll get that major burning, you know, sensation going on. So then you take your antacids, whatever it is, and it pushes that stomach acid down. And you think that everything's all good and fine. Well, that stomach acid is your body's first line of defense against any kind of foreign invader. So bacteria, viruses, parasites, mold, anything like that. You bite your nails, you put a pen in your mouth, you eat food. That stomach acid is supposed to sterilize whatever comes into your body, okay? So if you push that down, there's no line of defense. There's nothing protecting your body. It's just open season. So this is a lot of times where we start to see like H. pylori infections in the stomach. And then, you know, people that use a lot of antibiotics and stuff like that, that stomach acid starts to go away. 
And then it's open season for that bacteria and everything, parasites and viruses and all that stuff to travel into the liver, into the gallbladder. Then we start to see liver issues, start to see gallstones, gallbladder attacks, things like that. Most of the time, that's because there's not enough stomach acid. It's a trickle-down effect. So we can starve out that those infections in the gallbladder by fixing the, the stomach acid issue. You can save your gallbladder. You know, it's doable, completely doable. Then you can digest your fats if you have a gallbladder. So everyone wins. That'd be nice. So, what was that? I said, yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, nobody wants to get bloated after eating a couple nuts. So also if that, that stomach acid is not on point, then you're allowing food that's not completely turned into chime, which is just basically like liquid, what your stomach is supposed to do. Your food is going undigested into the small intestine, which is very, very irritating. And that will cause a lot of food sensitivities. So people that have been on antacids for a long time usually have a lot of food sensitivities, could have something called leaky gut, which is basically gut permeability, um, where the lining of the, the, the um, intestine is very, very thin, and the immune system is just basically attacking everything and anything because it thinks everything is a foreign invader because um, your gut's not digesting properly. So a lot of issues come up from popping antacids and from not having a balanced stomach acid. Now, I know that natural... Stomach acid can decrease with age, that natural production. Do you recommend that, um, you know, at a certain age, people start taking some like BTNHCL with their food? Yeah. Okay. I always recommend that if you think that you have uh, hydrochloric acid, like a stomach acid issue, that you talk to a practitioner and you don't just start popping HCL because you can cause a lot of damage. Exactly. That. Because not all pills are created the same. Not all supplements are created the same, as you guys know very, very well. So you could have, you know, one HCL product that has 500 milligrams of HCL in it and is very, very strong and potent. And your body is absorbing all 500 milligrams of that. And then you could have another product that is 250 milligrams in its scrap, basically. And your body is only absorbing like 100 milligrams of that. Well, if your body's used to taking that, getting that 100 milligram, and then all of a sudden you switch over to this brand that has that 500 milligrams of the good stuff, you could be just screwing up your stomach royally. So you want to make sure that you're working with a practitioner that knows how to pace HCL therapy and knows what the signs are when you need to start backing off of the HCL, because eventually you should be able to wake that stomach acid up and, and rebalance that stomach enough where you can get off of the HCL and you don't need it anymore. Or you might only need it every once in a while for certain occasions or whatever. But it's definitely something that you do not want to go willy-nilly just pop in HCL. <laughs> yeah, stop it. No, I mean, I see that a lot where people just go out and buy some and I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't like just start popping pills. Like, <laughs> Oh, uh, be kind of cautious here. <laughs> yeah, America's yeah. answer to everything, especially, especially with something like stomach acid. I mean, that's acid. Yeah, <laughs> like it'll burn a hole through your hand if you pour it on your skin. Like that's that's not good. You don't want to be taking too much of that. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. Well, let's. Uh, I want to switch gears here a little bit. There's another kind of a movement, a craze out there that I've seen a lot of people latching onto. It's kind of gaining some traffic, and that's intermittent fasting. Oh, God. I knew you were going to say that. Really? Too. Wow. Yeah. You're good. You're good. <laughs> good. What's your take? Is it friend or foe? Oh, God. It really, for some people, a very small portion of the population, I would say that that is an okay thing to do. Okay. I was talking to, having a consultation with a guy yesterday who was talking about how he does that all the time and he'll go for like over 24 hours. And I'm just like, your poor liver. Oh, my God. <laughs> So how would I know if I'm okay to do it? If you, well, I, there's, there's a lot of different variables. So you need to understand the process of detoxification in the body. Your phase one detoxification is basically how your body gathers toxins and um, out of the cells and pushes them to the liver to be formulated in a way that they can be detoxed out of the body via your sweat, your urine, you know, poop, all that good stuff. So a lot of times people's phase one is very, very efficient and it'll just shovel things into the liver all day long. So when you fast, you actually speed up that phase one, which is why a lot of times people feel really, really good. And you're also taking out any foods that you might be having a reaction to. So your inflammation level in your body goes way down. So people feel really good when they do fast. 
typically. But then if your liver is kind of bogged down, if you have any gallbladder issues, liver just can't move things through the system properly, or if you have kidney issues, that can be really not in your favor uh, because then that phase one or that phase two is not going to be able to keep up with the phase one. And the phase two needs food. It needs protein to work properly. Your liver needs protein to function, to run through its whole process. So if you have an imbalance there, then that's probably not going to be the best thing for you. So people that have gallbladder issues that have any kind of liver issues where their liver numbers have been abnormal, they have liver pain, they have uh, restless legs, or just feel like they need to like kind of move because they get agitated really easily. Those are typically people that have liver issues. If you don't digest well, especially fats, probably have a liver issue, different things like that, then that kind of fasting would definitely not be in your best interest. Now, how about for cell regeneration, especially in the GI tract? Like you kind of highlighted that earlier, giving the body a little extra time to kind of rejuvenate. If someone cut off, say, at 7 p.m. at night and they didn't eat until 10 the next day, or maybe like a 14 to 16 hour. 10 hours, like 10 a.m.? Um, yes, 10 a.m. Like the next day. 7 yeah. p.m. to 10 yeah. a.m.? That's perfectly Like a fine. 14 to 16 hour intermittent fast. Yeah, like overnight like that, that's uh-huh. perfectly fine. I wouldn't go from like 7 p.m. to 7 p.m. or anything sure. like that. Because that's also going to um, make you more likely to binge eat too, especially for people that have food issues of any kind, or they just, you know, they have hormonal imbalances where they fear that they have like a willpower issue and they just can't, once they are able to eat again, then they're just like eating everything. Well, that's not going to be good for your digestive system or your liver either. But yeah, like those at 7 p.m., 10 a.m. kind of thing. I think that that's okay for most people. And yeah, you're giving your your digestive system a break, which is really, really good. Digestive system needs that, especially if you do have digestive issues. For a lot of people, I'll have them do like a smoothie or a warm soup that's pureed once a day or something like that, just to give their digestive system a little bit of a break and to just kind of consume something that's already pre-digested and broken down. So yeah, there's different ways to do it. Yeah. Well, just because I know we're going to have some listeners who are either already doing this or they're going to go out and try it now. What's the proper way to break that fast? To break the, oh, the fast? Mm-hmm. Slowly. I mean, you don't want to, you're totally like missing the point and the purpose if you do this whole fast and then you're like, yes, now I can eat everything because I didn't eat for, you know, however many hours. So, which is very, very common, actually. people think that they did this great thing and now they're just going to eat you know a burger and fries and pizza and all this stuff you want to warm up that digestive system just like you would warm up your body before you go into a workout you know so you don't want to just throw all this food into your body so eat things that you know that you're going to digest well or that you know that kind of really syncs up with you really really well right away i wouldn't do anything super heavy so people that tend to not digest proteins well, I wouldn't go have like a steak or something like that. I probably do a little bit of fish or some eggs or chicken, poultry, you know, something like that. Digest and then you want to replenish those starches a little bit. So depending on the type of person you are and what types of starches work best for you, that could be anything from brown rice or quinoa to, you know, your root vegetables or winter squash or something like that, depending on what kind of person you are and what works best for your body little bit of fat. So Aaron, let's say I go, I get a food panel done. I kind of understand my sensitivities, any allergies I may have, intolerances, and I start eating the correct foods for me. I'm in the gym every day still. And then what does that implementation look like? Do you fall into like the six small meals a day, you know, three small or three regular meals with a couple snacks? What does that process look like for eating, you know, for proper blood sugar levels, energy levels? Uh, building muscle, hormone balance, that sort of thing? So I kind of go against the grain on this for what we've been taught (laughs) uh, for the last, you know, since what, the late 80s on eating every five to six or, you know, eating your five to six small meals throughout the day, every three to four hours, all that stuff. I go completely against the grain on that. There's a hormone called leptin. 
that is made in your fat cells that talks directly to the brain, that tells the brain whether there is enough fat in storage or whether you need to start, you know, so you can start burning fat or whether you need to hang on to some fat. So that leptin oftentimes would become leptin resistant and the brain is not getting the message that there's enough fat in storage. And so the brain kept, keeps on telling the body to hang on to fat. It keeps on telling you if you're hungry, that you need to eat, things like that. So a lot of people that start a diet every Monday, they're like, all right, I'm getting on track. Here we go. Those people are typically very, very leptin resistant. So the brain is not picking up that signal kind of thing. One of the ways to keep your body leptin resistant and to also give yourself diabetes is to eat every three to four hours because that leptin has a life cycle and it wants to have this nice little flow, this ebb and flow throughout the body. So if I eat, that's hour zero, okay? Then my leptin or my insulin level, sorry, is gonna come up or it should, okay? And then it's gonna come back, it's gonna hit its peak and then it's gonna come back down or it should come back down to its baseline, okay? Around four hours later. Then my glycogen should be released from the liver and head on the way up, okay? When that, that insulin level comes back down to balance. That insulin wants to put things away. It wants to hold on to things. And then your glycogen wants to burn things. And that allows your liver to go through its workout that it, it needs to, to have um, in order to run efficiently and do the 500 different things that your liver does through your body. If you're eating every three to four hours, that insulin level is never allowed to come back down to baseline. So it's always being shot up, 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 up. So then the body's becoming more inflamed. Your blood sugar is high. Your insulin is high. Your liver is bogged down. Your digestive system is stressed out because your food moves from your stomach to your small intestine every three to four hours, roughly, after you eat. So if you're constantly putting food into your stomach, your, food, your stomach's like, come on, man. Like, give me a break here, you know? So I recommend every five to six hours eating something so that your body has time to go through its natural process of insulin coming up, insulin coming down, glycogen going up, and glycogen, you know, coming down with the next meal. So that is going to help. That's the best way to balance out a leptin issue, a leptin imbalance is by doing your three standard meals throughout the day. Now, for those of us that work out and train hard and we're in the gym, you know, a couple hours a day and stuff like that, your protein powder does not count as a meal. Now, this is a supplement, okay? You cannot have just protein powder for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That is, that is not going to work out. So I don't count my protein powder after my workout as anything more than supplement. So I'm not counting that as hour zero and then waiting another five hours before I eat again, I'd probably kill someone. So don't count your protein powder. So you do your breakfast, you work out, you have your protein powder. I'm still counting for my breakfast to my hour five or six. You don't want to go really too much longer than that because unless you're doing this intermittent fasting thing, <laughs> then um, you know you can run into other problems with your liver like we talked about before. Do you ever find with that type of plan that it's difficult for athletes to get in enough protein or enough food in, in general? In the beginning, yeah, because they're used to eating every three to four hours. So we have to kind of retrain the body. So when we first start doing it, I'm not having them do every five hours or every six hours right off the bat. We're doing every four and a half hours for a couple of weeks. And then we're going to every five hours. And seeing what feels best for them. Does five hours feel best for them? Is it five and a half? Is it six? Where is it? You know, so we kind of have to play with it a little bit in the beginning. At the beginning, it might be kind of stressful because it's going against everything that they've done for the last however many years. But what I find a lot of people that those three standard meals, although at the beginning seems kind of nerve wracking and stressful for them to kind of wrap their mind around, once they start doing it, they start noticing that their mind is a lot clearer. They sleep a lot better at night. They have more energy throughout the day. Joints feel better. Loading goes away. And that was eating like that. every how many hours you said? Huh? That was eating every how many hours? 
Oh, five to six. Five to six. Okay. Yeah. So are those meals larger though? In order to get yeah. enough oh, God, protein? Yeah. They're a lot larger. Yeah, because okay. if you're used to eating five to six small meals a day, you still need to keep up your calories. Right. You know, so you can't eat the same small meal that you would have eaten. You're going to have to kind of combine things a little bit. Are there ever any concerns that getting too much protein in one sitting? If you're an athlete trying to take in 175 grams a day, which mm-hmm. would be probably too lot. many for just about anyone, I, I think. Um, yeah. we, we fall more in line and kind of recommend the, the 0.75. Uh-huh. I know a lot for even the bodybuilders old school. It's like, it's like that one to 1.5 you know, yeah. grams per pound of body weight, which is just way too much protein. It is. Yeah. Um, so even if you're eating the 0.75 and you're a 200 pound male, that's you know about 150 grams of protein a day. Mm-hmm. And so if you were breaking that up, even with a protein shake, That'd look almost like, what, 40 grams a sitting? Yeah. So for those bigger dudes that are doing that and that need that for their training, I do a lot with like collagen powder and stuff like that. Okay. So that, again, I count as supplemental, not as actual food. It's basically just protein supplement. So I have them introduce that in either, you know, with their protein powder after a workout or at night or both. So it kind of depends on the person. But yeah, I use collagen powder a lot. Okay. Good to know. I know for me, Aaron, I'll eat anything under the sun. And so I've never had a problem eating, you know, you know, healthier things. I love a good beet salad or, uh, you know, whatever it might be. But a lot of people in my family are actually really picky eaters. And so sometimes they're a little more um, resistant to eating, you know, some, some healthier things. So I know you deal with a lot of people. How do you combat those picky eaters and getting them on a healthier eating plan? There's a lot of different ways to do that. And some people are more stubborn than others, but your palate will change over time. And I don't feel like you can ever say, I don't like broccoli or whatever it is until you've tried broccoli a couple of different ways, because you might just not like it raw and you know plain but you might like it roasted who knows so i'm always trying to find different ways to try have people try different things and then i also have a, a like a pinterest food board that i save new recipes to every single day like i'm pinning different recipes and all of my clients have access to that board and so they can go on there and they can see a lot of times it's yeah, people are picky because they've had certain foods a certain way and they know that they don't like it. Mm-hmm. But there's this whole other world out there of food preparation outside of like the standard, you know, meat and potatoes, American way of, you know, what we all grew up with of, you know, making stuff. So once they start to kind of dabble into that a little bit, most people are able to find that they do like a lot of different foods if they're prepared in different ways. They just have to find the ways that it works best for them to prepare things. And then again, your palate changes over time in a relatively short amount of time. Once we start detoxing out the chemicals and the food additives and the sugars and, you know, all those other things, food, real food starts to taste good to you. So it just, just takes a little bit of time and there's a process to it. Yeah. Nothing happens overnight. So. Yeah. So I need to start putting like some bacon on my Brussels sprouts first and then eventually you'll like just. Yeah, you can totally do that. Bacon Brussels sprouts are are pretty mean. Yeah. And see, that's, there you go. That's a perfect example is the bacon Brussels sprout thing. is like a huge craze. Like everyone's in love with bacon Brussels sprouts right now. (laughs) And it's because of how the Brussels sprouts are prepared. Yeah, right. So it's not that you don't like Brussels sprouts. It's that you've just never had bacon Brussels sprouts. (laughs) Bacon makes everything better. Exactly. So have the bacon Brussels sprouts. You'll probably be able to eat your Brussels sprouts then. Now, Aaron, I would assume... Finding a way. I would assume you're a big fan of meal prep. What are some, if you are, uh, what what are some of your... Don't assume. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't assume. assume. I saw that. I like meal prep. A lot of my clients do meal prep. Honestly, (laughs) I don't do a ton of it anymore myself. I used to, but now I've come to a point where I'm so like mentally exhausted that I'm just like, I'm just going to steam a bunch of veggies. And I always have uh, chicken and bison and stuff like that. Like that's my prep is my protein. So 
So I'd make that in bulk and then I'll steam vegetables or something like that. Cause I work from home. So it's a lot easier for me than it is for a lot of other people where I can just steam veggies real quick, grab some meat out of the fridge, throw it all together. And I'm good to go in like, you know, 10 minutes, basically. Last night I did do some actual meal prep and stuff like that. So every once in a while I'll like make a big stew or roast a ton of vegetables while I'm making my meat and stuff like that. But the protein is the thing that I really do the meal prep stuff on and the veggies. I know that I can just steam and I'm not really a person that needs to have something that tastes amazing and different and raw every single day. I'm just like, whatever I just need. (laughs) So do you have some meal prep tips for people out there that maybe they work, you know, eight to five and have a commute and then hit the gym afterwards? Yes. That's that's always a a tough thing for people, you know, is meal prepping. What was that last part? I know that's always a tough thing for people, you know, when they have a long job and then they still want to work out and it's, it's, they want to eat the right foods. They want to have them ready, but it's making that commitment on a Saturday or Sunday to, to batch everything. To do it. Yeah. So this is a saying that I say to all of my clients all the time and they hate me for it is (laughs) fail to plan, plan to fail. Okay. So if you're not prepping, just know that you're probably going to fall off the wagon if you don't have your food ready and ready to go for you. So it's that that level of dedication to your goals, basically. So making the time, making that a priority and doing it. So whether that means that you have to find a day to do it where you're just taking a couple hours on a Sunday afternoon or something like that to roast a bunch of veggies and bake a bunch of chicken or whatever it is, then that's what works for you. Or if you're a person that every once in a while you do that, and then from time to time, when you know that you're going to have a really busy week or a really busy weekend, you know that you can order different foods from a reputable food prep company or something like that. There's a couple that I like, then then you can do that too. So you always have to have a plan A and a plan B. So am I going to have time to do all this meal prep stuff? Yes or no. If no, then I need to resort to my plan B so I can still stay on track with with my goals and what I'm trying to do and stuff like that. And your stuff doesn't have to be fancy. Like everyone thinks that they have to take like 10 hours to do all this food prep stuff. It doesn't have to be like that. You know, if you have good herbs and seasonings and things like that, that you can put on your, your veggies and your um, different dishes and stuff like that, that can transform your food. So you don't need to find these big elaborate recipes that take, you know, hours to make one dish that's going to last you two or three meals. So try to go for bulk and easy, fast. Use different herbs. Yeah. Plan B should not be the uh, pizza delivery place. (laughs) No, no. Not at all. <laughs> that is never plan B. <laughs> or Hunan Palace. or hey, Don't knock on China Buffet. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, Aaron, when's, uh, when's your book coming out? My book? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you got so much like good stuff. You have to. Sound like my business mentor. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't have a book in the works right now. I do have a dessert recipe book that is on my general sounds like site. my kind of book huh sounds like my kind of book yes Jake i love desserts <laughs> so you have to have a good dessert book um and good desserts that are quick easy and still healthy and it's top seven allergen free so it'll nice. cut out you know all those allergens that are most common for people so that's available on my general website my non-crossfit website which is aaronpalmercnhp.com but any, I've been wanting to make another recipe book, but I just don't know when I'm going to get that done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll happen. Someday. Well, before we close out, how about a couple quick questions to wrap up the show? Just for sure. the listeners, a few uh, rapid fire. So what are a couple of your go-to supplements for just overall general health that people could grab? For overall general health, I always recommend doing a fish oil. Um, I think that's really important for people, but it has to be a clean fish oil. You can't just go to Walgreens and grab a fish oil or GNC and grab a fish oil. Make sure you're going with a reputable company. I also, this isn't really a supplement, but I recommend it to most people or pretty much everyone is fermented foods. 
So re-inoculating the gut with that good bacteria, getting in some of those good enzymes and all that good stuff. There's some brands that I love. Um, Bubbies, B-U-B-B-I-E apostrophe S is the number one brand that I recommend. I'm not really a pickle person. And seriously, these pickles are the bomb. They're awesome. So you want to make sure that your fermented foods are fermented in saltwater brine, not vinegar. Um, vinegar can, can irritate the gut and cause some different issues. So you want the saltwater brine. So they have a pickle, like a dill pickle. They also have a sauerkraut. Those are awesome. Very mild sauerkraut. Wild Brine is another good brand for the fermented foods. Pat Creek is another one that's, that is good. And I think that's actually from Austin. If I'm not mistaken, is the Hat Creek. I could be wrong, I but so. I think it's from Austin. So those are kind of like my go-to fermented food brands. And the Wild Brine and the Hat Creek both do more than just pickles and sauerkraut. They have like fermented beets and carrots and okra and all kinds of stuff. So you can kind of try a bunch of different stuff there. So cool. those are kind of my main go-tos. Awesome. Favorite cut of fish. Mm. That's a tough one. I really like cod. And I know it's kind of boring, but I really just like cod with dill on it and a ton of sea salt. All right, we'll take it. We'll let that pass. And I'm from Minnesota, so it's not like we eat like a ton of seafood. <laughs> like, I guess <laughs> if you count like lake fish, like sunnies or something like that, then... yeah. But that's not that's not anything fancy either. So that's all right. <laughs> uh, favorite CrossFit workout, like the girl wads. Any wads, any named wads for everyone out there that doesn't CrossFit. Just sit this one out. Sit it out, or <laughs> or Google it, or yeah, just whatever. Cover your ears. <laughs> um. Oh my gosh, I like Cindy, which I know is not a lot of people's favorite because it's twenty minutes long. But I like body weight stuff. I'm really good at pull-ups. And I like long quads. <laughs> good to know. Let's see. What's your favorite song? <laughs> <laughs> My favorite? That is really hard to answer. How about, oh, even favorite band is hard. I'm really into music, so it's really hard. It depends on the month, really. Right now, I'm really into this band. Well, I really love the Lumineers and I actually went to Austin for their concert nice. school months ago. They're good. And then there's this other band called Houndmouth, which is a really <laughs> stupid name for a band. But it's kind of along the same lines as the Lumineers. It's like that bluesy kind of stuff. And they have some really they have some really good nice. songs. We'll look them Check up. them out. Hard name to forget. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, we'll it's a dumb band name. <laughs> How about, do you have a morning routine? And if so, does it involve coffee? I don't drink coffee because caffeine and I just really don't get along. Every once in a while, I'll drink a Kill Cliff because they're delicious. But I can only do one a day. Otherwise, even just that little bit of caffeine will like screw up my guts. Every morning I work out, I have to. So I get out of bed, take my dog out, have a little something for breakfast, go to the box. So. What time? What time <laughs> so I'm more excited about it. Yeah. What time is that first workout happening? Like six a.m. or five a.m. Uh, anywhere between six thirty and seven thirty. So yeah. Cool. Best part of the day. Nice. Well, I guess um, in closing, our last question: Who'd you vote for? Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> and cut. <laughs> We won't get into that on here. But no, this has been a ton of great stuff, Aaron. We appreciate you taking the time and chatting with us. Thanks. I appreciate it, guys. It was fun.